tell me, what would you do in this situation? Several years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and he said, Aaron, you are never going to believe what happened this past Sunday. He said, uh, the pastor, our pastor, he was preaching an excellent sermon, a great sermon from James chapter 3 on the power of the tongue. And he said, Aaron, everyone, everyone there in the service felt con uh, especially challenged. He said, well, at one particularly convicting point of the sermon, just when the the pastor was the most an animated and had the most fervor as he was denouncing the terrible, terrible sin of gossip. Just in what seemed like the climax of his sermon, talking about how terrible the sin of gossip is, his wife stood up from the second row. She then took her finger, pointed it at her husband, and said, in a loud voice, you stop that right now. Can you imagine? Do you know what the pastor did? After what seemed like an eternity, he calmly closed his Bible and prayed to end the service. True story. Guess what everybody was talking about at lunch that Sunday? <laughs> Can you imagine? Now, I know none of us were there in the room when that happened, but let me ask you, what do you think her response revealed. I mean, to be sure, it revealed a lot of things, didn't it? <laughs> There's lots of ways we could go with this, but... Yet, by far, the thing her response revealed the most, I want to suggest, is that she had a heart that was hardened to the Word of God. She could not receive counsel or instruction from Scripture. Indeed, she willingly rejected it, didn't she? Faith, in our passage this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 5, in our passage this morning, the preacher is going to take a break from his explanation of the priesthood of Christ. For, for the past two Sundays, we have been drinking deeply and been refreshed and delighting in the wonderful truth that we have Jesus as our great high priest. And that Jesus, as our great high priest, he can help us in our time of need. What a precious truth, amen? As we've been talking about the last several weeks, your greatest need in suffering, my greatest need in suffering, indeed, our greatest need in each and every moment of the day, the different situations we encounter, our greatest need in those moments is to not sin, but instead honor and please Jesus. My greatest need when suffering, your greatest need when suffering, your greatest need when going through a hardship or a trial, according to Scripture, your greatest need is to not sin, but instead 
Honor and please your King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the incredible thing about Hebrews chapter 4, in particular verse 16, is that the author says that Jesus gives grace to those in our time of need. The very thing we need, grace, to not sin and to honor Jesus, He freely gives. Indeed, the offer invites us to boldly approach. Boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And not only does he give us grace to help us in our time of need, but when we sin, and oh, we do, Jesus gives mercy and forgiveness to those who confess their sins to him. What what a treasure we have in Jesus Christ being our great high priest. Indeed, as we looked at last week, the author made this point, and that is Jesus is the high priest you need. And as I've been mentioning the last couple of weeks, I want to suggest that this is the burden, this has been the burden of the author of Hebrews. He wants you, he wants me to see just how great a treasure we have as Jesus Christ as our high priest And last week we looked at why Jesus is the high priest that we need. And the author highlighted three reasons. You'll recall in the first four verses of chapter 5, for the first time he actually explains a little bit what a high priest is. And then in verses 5 through 10 he cites three reasons why Jesus is the priest you and I need. It's because he accepted his divine appointment. Remember, were high priests voted on by the people? No, God chose the high priest. Verse 5 and 6 tells us that God the Father chose his Son to be our great high priest. We also learned that Jesus learned obedience through suffering so he can help us obey when we, are, when we suffer. And then perhaps most importantly, he gives us eternal salvation. He's the source of eternal salvation. Well, as we're about to see, there is much more the author of Hebrews wants, uh, wants to teach us about the priesthood of Christ. But guess what? He can't. And you know why he can't? It's because he discerns that there is something wrong with his original readers. Please hear me. The preacher, the author here of Hebrews, he identifies something in the original readers that will prevent them from understanding what he wants to teach them. So you know what the preacher does? He he breaks from his discourse on the priesthood of Christ in order to address his concern. In faith, here's the question that we need to ask ourselves as we read and study this next passage in the book of Hebrews, and that is, Do I have the same problem as them? That is, do we share the same spiritual disease that plagued the original readers of this letter? A disease that is so important that the author of Hebrews takes a break from what he's talking about to address it. Do we share that disease. And what is it? What is the disease that is so concerning 
to the author of Hebrews? Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. That's page 103, 1003 in that paperback Bible. Follow along with me as I read uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. So the author talks about how Jesus is the high priest we need, and he ends in verse 10 talking about how Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And now he says this, verse 11, about this we have much to say, referring to how Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, and he is going to say much more about that. But notice what he says. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Is it that it's really complicated? Is that it's, it's, it's really ethereal? Is that why it's hard to explain? Notice what he says. And this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And then he says this in verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Several years ago, the TV show 2020 aired a segment about a girl named Brooke Greenberg. Here is a picture of Brooke with her younger sister, Carly. What might surprise you is that Brooke is the girl being held in this picture. Brooke is the girl on the left. In fact, you know how old Brooke is in this picture? Brooke is 16 years old. Her younger sister, Carly, is 13. Your eyes are not deceiving you. As you can imagine, Brooke has baffled doctors because she has not aged. She has essentially remained an infant, both physically and mentally. And although the doctors can't explain her condition, they all agree that something is terribly wrong with Brooke. 
Indeed, they all have stated that for her to remain in this condition as a toddler, as an infant, for her to remain in this condition is dangerous. And faith, this is especially true when it comes to our spiritual condition. Notice the preacher interrupts his teaching on the priesthood of Christ. And why does he do that? Because he discerns, as we've discussed, that his readers, notice this text says, that they're spiritually immature. They are infants. I mean, notice the language he uses there in verse 13. He refers to them as children. And this is why he cannot keep teaching them. Please hear me. He can't teach them because the subject matter is difficult to understand. No, he can't teach them because they are spiritually immature. So what does the author do in light of this reality? We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 6. He exhorts them, and by extension us, he exhorts us to move towards Christian maturity. To move towards Christian maturity. The author of Hebrews wants the original readers, and he wants us to listen, to grow up. To mature in our faith. To no longer be infants. To no longer be children. He wants us to grow up and to move towards maturity. As several commentators have pointed out, and it's easy to see, you probably discerned it, the imperative there in chapter 6, verse 1, serves as the main point of this passage. In this text, we are called to move towards Christian maturity. And here's what we need to understand, faith. And this is, this is really important. And that is, remaining a spiritual infant is dangerous. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner is really helpful here. He writes this. He says, the text could be easily misread. The author does not believe there's a permanent state of spiritual infancy that believers can occupy. The entire purpose of the book is to warn believers, warn, not warm, I'm sorry, <laughs> to warn believers about the danger of falling away. He goes on. The author doesn't contemplate the possibility of drinking spiritual milk for years and years and still not obtaining eternal life. It is urgent, rather, to leave spiritual infancy behind, for one is either drawing nearer to God or falling away from Him. Faith. Four years after this picture was taken, Brooke died. Please hear me. Remaining in an infant state killed her. And the author of Hebrews is making the same point spiritually. Yet sadly... The church in America is filled with Christians who are content to remain spiritual infants. Though they've been Christians for decades, 
They look like brooks spiritually. And you know what? Many times, they have no problem with that. Friend, is that true of you? Are you content staying a spiritual infant? If so, please heed the warning of this passage. You are in a dangerous place. Give effort towards Christian maturity. So here now is the million-dollar question. What is Christian maturity? What is it we're to move on towards, we're to strive towards? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. I want to suggest that as we look carefully at the author's argument in this passage, he tells us. Now, let me just say at the outset, to be sure, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3, is not the only place that answers this question, what does Christian maturity look like? However, the author of Hebrews, I want to suggest, does draw our attention to four defining marks of Christian maturity. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first two. So notice first, please, that according to this text, Christian maturity, we learn, is heart-oriented. It's heart-oriented. It's a matter of the heart, first and foremost. Because consider what the preacher says there in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say, referring to the priesthood of Christ, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Um, Eugene Polly, excuse me, Polly, Eugene Polly, uh, he lived his entire life in the Chicagoland area where he worked for Zenith Electronics for 47 years. He was hired as a stock boy back in the Depression, and he eventually worked his way up. He became an engineer, an engineer with 18 patents to his name. Well, in 1950, Eugene invented a device called Lazy Bones. It has since proven to be his most famous invention, Lazy Bones. Because you know what lazy bones is? A lazy bone is a TV remote. That's right. Remote controls were first called, listen to this, lazy bones. Now at first, Eugene was pleased to see how well received his invention was. Lazy bones were showing up all over the places in houses across America. However, towards the end of his life, interestingly enough, he began to express regret over what he had made. Think about that. The inventor of the TV remote control began to express regret. And you know why? Because he said, listen, he said, quote, it has made people more and more lazy. Notice, Eugene isn't the only one who recognizes the dangerous effects of being lazy. The author of Hebrews sees it as well. As several commentators have pointed out, the Greek word that is translated there in verse 11 as dull, it literally means slow or sluggish. 
In fact, that, that Greek word, it's used only one other time in the entire New Testament. And you know where the other time it's found? The book of Hebrews. Just a couple verses later in chapter 6, verse 12. In that passage, I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. In that passage, we learn what the opposite of dullness is. Right? In verse 11, he talks about we become dull of hearing. Well, in Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12, we learn what the opposite is. Listen to what we see. The author writes, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word that is translated dull in chapter 5, verse 11. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this is what I want you to see. Notice the opposite of dullness of hearing is diligence or earnestness to have the message of hope and to turn it into the assurance of hope. The opposite of dullness is the imitation of people who hear the promises of God and then respond with faith and patience. This is why I say Christianity, Christian maturity, is heart-oriented. It's a matter of the heart. As pastor and author John Piper has insightfully written, he says, dull hearing doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your physical ears. It means there's something wrong with your heart. The heart is not eager and diligent to embrace the promises and turn them into faith and patience. Instead, the word comes into the ears and goes down to the heart and hits something hard or tough or starting to get hard. I mean, consider for a moment what we learned in Hebrews chapter 3. In that chapter, the preacher went out of his way to remind you, Christian, and to remind me that we are all responsible, please hear me, for the condition of our hearts. Remember this? Several times in that chapter he commanded, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your hearts. Christian, please hear me. You are responsible. Not your spouse, not your parents, not your friend. Not You are responsible for the spiritual condition of your heart. Do you take that responsibility seriously? I mean, and do you recall what the preacher identified in Hebrews chapter 3 as the chief symptom of a hardened heart? Do you know what it was there in Hebrews chapter 3? Dull hearing. As the preacher said throughout Hebrews chapter 3, Israel heard God's word, yet they rebelled. Dull hearing because of the condition of their heart. You know who they're like? You know who Israel's like? They're like that pastor's wife. You stop that right now. Hard heart. What about you? Now you... You may not stand up and tell a pastor to stop preaching. At least I hope none of you do that. <laughs> but, but faith community church, when the word of God is proclaimed, 
What is the posture of your heart? Are you standing up on the inside, resisting God's word, resisting what God's word calls you to do? In effect, are you saying in your heart to God, you stop that right now? Or is your posture one of humble submission? Do you with eagerness seek to apply God's word regardless of how well the preacher preaches? In his book, Directions for Profitability, Hearing the Word Preached, Puritan Richard Baxter gives this, this wise advice to all Christians. Baxter writes this. He says, make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as those that will go no further than they are carried as by force. He goes on. You have to work. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be busy as he you must open your mouths and digest it, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing. Christian maturity is first and chiefly, it's heart-oriented. And it's helpful for us to ask, what's the condition of my heart? Here's a, here's a better question. What do you do Sunday afternoon after church? Do you give any effort to thinking deeply on the word that was just preached and how you can apply it into your life? Are you diligent to do that? Or do you check out, close the Bible, set it off to the shelf, and don't give it any more consideration. I mean, just imagine for a moment, but what if you did? What if starting today you gave real concerted effort to review and understand and apply the passage that was studied on Sunday morning? And where God's word convicts you of sin, you repent. And where God's word calls you to action, you obey. So first, Christian maturity is is heart-oriented. Second, Christian maturity is measured by righteousness. Listen again to verses 12 through 14. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Christian maturity is heart-oriented 
and it's measured by righteousness. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. Likewise, some mistakenly think Christian maturity is measured by intellectual ability. But it's not. Rather, as this passage makes clear, Christian maturity is measured by righteousness. Notice, these Christians, these early Christians, they weren't new to the faith, were they? For what does the author say in verse 12? He says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. They've been Christians for a while. Now, to be sure, the author does not mean that they should all be teachers in the technical sense. Rather, you know what he's doing? He's referring to Christian discipleship. He's saying that at this point in their lives, in their Christian journey, they should have matured enough in their faith to disciple other Christians. And truly, this is the call for all Christians. Indeed, the biblical vision for the church is Christians instructing and encouraging other Christians. I mean, consider what Paul writes in Romans 15, 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. This is the vision. The vision is that the church is mature enough that we can mutually encourage and instruct one another towards righteousness. I mean, this is why several years ago our biblical theme that we gave attention to was called to counsel. The author of Hebrews is simply echoing what the sentiment we see all throughout the New Testament, and that is all Christians would be mature enough to disciple and counsel other Christians. And how is maturity measured? I believe these verses tell us. As stated, Christian maturity is measured by righteousness. Notice how plain this point is made. According to verses 13 through 14, the mature are those who are skilled in righteousness, as opposed to unskilled, as well as those who have been, and, and take note of the verbs, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In his commentary on this passage, New Testament scholar William Lane makes this helpful observation. He says, This house church that received Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, was not spiritually immature in the sense that, they, that these men and women lacked theological insight. See Hebrews 6, 1-3. through He says, Their problem was simpler but more serious. They had regressed and had become infantile in the area of making sound Christian decisions. Tom Schreiner agrees. He says this. He's like, spiritual maturity, the author teaches, doesn't depend fundamentally on intellectual ability. It isn't correlated with theological depth or the ability to grasp theological truths. The readers were spiritual infants because they weren't putting into practice what they had learned. Listen, 
the problem wasn't with the milk. The milk wasn't the problem. It's what they were doing with it, or rather, not doing with it. You see, the reason why the original readers had to be taught again wasn't because they had forgotten the oracles of God. It's because they didn't apply them. Christian maturity is measured by righteousness. And, it, and is it any wonder that the author of Hebrews teaches this? Because, it, I mean, is this not writ large in the New Testament? What does James write in James 1.22, right? He calls us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And what's the deception? The deception is to thinking, I'm spiritually mature when I just simply hear the word and not do it. Or think of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, when he talks about building our house on the rock, right? You know, the rains came down and the floods came up. That's true, Right? Building your house on the sand, according to Jesus, is those who hear the words of Jesus and do not obey them. So what's the rock? Well, if sand is equal to hearing God's word and disobeying it, the rock then is hearing his words and obeying. In other words, sand is to disobedience as rock is to obedience. Like I mentioned, we're going to take two weeks to look at this passage because there's a lot to unpack here. But for now, I just want to invite you, Christian, to at least begin to have a fervor to move towards Christian maturity. And the best way to do that is simply just by following the verbs in the section. If you want to move towards Christian maturity, become skilled in righteousness. Train yourself by the constant practice of applying God's word in your life. And, and, this, and this morning, let me just give you an easy one. If you want to start moving towards maturity, you know what's one of the first things you could do? Give thanks to God in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Seriously, I want to encourage you to give real effort to thank God in each and every situation, knowing that God stands above it all. He's doing all things for his glory and our good. And what is the good that he's doing? He's allowing whatever circumstance or difficulty to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Giving thanks in all circumstances, that's spiritual maturity. You know what's a sign of spiritual immaturity? Grumbling and complaining. Venting how things aren't going your way. Expressing disgust over how things aren't going the way you want them to go. That's being a spiritual infant. Faith, to close, I want to remind us that we have a great high priest who stands ready to help us in our time of need. And perhaps the greatest need you're going to have this week will be applying with diligence to obey God's word. Let us all boldly approach the throne of grace to ask for grace in our time of need so that we would move and grow 
towards maturity. Amen? Let's pray.